Title of this message tonight is Living in Light of the Resurrection, 16 Lessons from a Disobedient Church. 16 Lessons from a Disobedient Church. So my goal tonight is to get through the book of 1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be pretty much the entire night. We're going to be camping out uh, in most of the chapters of 1 Corinthians. It's almost like 16 little sermonettes, if you will, 16 little sermons. Paul's addressing different things that are going on in the, in the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church is kind of like the church in America in many ways. They were wealthy. There was immorality all around them. Uh, they were, I think, the third largest city by the second century in the Roman Empire in Corinth. And much of the sin in the city around the church was making its way into the church. And what does Christ say about his bride? He's coming for a pure bride. He will not tolerate sin in his church, and neither would the Apostle Paul. So he writes this letter. Now, part of this teaching I shared in Texas when I was blessed to go there uh, several months ago now, and my wife um, said she really liked the message. So she asked that I share it again, and the only problem was much of my notes, I think, were lost somewhere at the airport. Um, Some baggage terminal area somewhere in some airport my notes are. I don't know where they are, but I had a couple of the notes um, from that teaching, and so bear with me tonight because I scribbled some more things down and tried to remember all that I taught on back there in Texas several months ago. And part of this message I also shared at the rescue mission where I work, the Ventura County Rescue Mission in Oxnard. And so I just want to begin by telling you about when I shared part of this um, teaching there, um, a guy came up to me after, a guy in the recovery program. He was a guy that struggled with alcohol abuse for much of his life. He was once a bodybuilder. He was a big dude, probably like 230 pounds, pretty solid muscle. And they told me that when he was in the program prior to that, he was even bigger than when he was there when I was there. And I was like, wow, this guy was a big dude. He came up to me after the teaching and he said, thank you so much, Nick. I'm, re- I'm really encouraged by that teaching. And as I'll get to it in a little bit, we're, we talked about the gospel, we talked about sin, we talked about eternal life. And for him to say that was really encouraging to me. It's such a blessing when you teach the word of God and people come up to you after. And they're like, oh, this thing you said really touched me or this part of the message really encouraged me. And so that's one of the joys that I get every Thursday morning. I get to teach the guys straight from the word of God at the rescue mission and just pray that God does a work in their life. Now, unfortunately, this story took a turn for the worst. This gentleman uh, later left the program early, and which always breaks your heart when they don't finish the 10-month program and they leave early. And so he left early. We were praying for him. I saw him um, maybe a month or two later, right outside our gates, and he was drunk. And I think he was there with his girlfriend or his wife, and they were both drunk. And he even showed a desire to maybe come back to the rescue mission. And I said, we can't bring you back if you're drunk. Go sober up enough to where you can come back in the mission. We kept praying for him. Unfortunately, the next time we heard, he passed away. And that's what we deal with where, where I work. And even talking about it right now makes me emotional. Because one day, you're talking to an individual, you're encouraging them in the Lord, you're preaching the word, And not too long after, you hear a story like that, and you don't know how they finished. You pray that he cried out to the Lord, 
at the end, but you just don't know. And so every time I teach the word of God, I'm passionate. I understand that it might not be the, it, it could be the very last time that I talk to those individuals. It could be the very last time I teach. It could be the very last time that those sitting in front of me are alive. And that's just the fact of the matter. And so I, I preach with genuineness. I preach with transparency. I just put everything out there. I leave my heart on my sleeve and I pray that God does a work in their lives. And so 1 Corinthians 15, there's 16 lessons from this letter that I want to look at. We're going to go to chapter 1, verse 10. I might spend a little bit more time on one chapter than another. My goal is to get to 1 Corinthians 15 and really camp out there for several minutes. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. It says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. The problem in chapter one that Paul is dealing with is divisions in the church. They're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. And Paul's like, really? Why are you picking favorites? We're not Jesus. Worship him. Look to Christ. It's not about us. Get your eyes off of yourselves, your pride, your arrogance, your overconfidence. You need to get your eyes on Jesus Christ. He's the most important thing. So the number one lesson that we see here is what kind of people are you and I? Are we people that unite the church? Are we people that are peacemakers? Are we looking out for others and building others up? Or are we dividing Are we speaking about others behind their backs? Are we picking favorites? We need to learn from this church. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Why did the Apostle Paul go to Corinth? Why did he go to these churches? Why did he write these letters? He says in verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I love those first five verses. I remember the first, one of the first times I was really studying those verses and looking those over. It gave me confidence to preach the word of God, because maybe you can relate. You feel weak. You fear and tremble at the thought of talking to maybe your neighbor or street evangelizing or preaching and to know that the apostle Paul, the great apostle Paul, said that he was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Yet that didn't hold him back from preaching the gospel. And I love verse two. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the centerpiece. That's the focal point. That's our message Jesus Christ and him crucified. When people come knocking on my door, different faiths, Jehovah's Witnesses, others, I say, what's the main message that you have for me today? Give me one or two lines. Sum it up for me. What is your message? And many times they'll talk about the kingdom. 
They'll talk about their church. They'll talk about baptism. They'll talk about commandments. They'll talk about a million and one different things. But will they tell me, I'm here to preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't hear that from them. And then I let them know I'm concerned you're not in line with the scriptures. You're not in line with the Apostle Paul. You're not in line with Peter. You're not in line with James. You're not in line with the disciples who preached Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. And we'll get to the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, Lord willing, in a little bit here. That was at the forefront and at the center of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And so lesson number two is that that should be at the front and center of our ministry as well. We're all ministers of reconciliation. We're pleading and we're begging for people to turn to Jesus Christ and to be saved. That's the bottom line of our message. Let's turn to chapter three, verse one. Paul says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? And then here he says again, as he did in chapter 1, one says, I'm of Paul, another says, I'm of Apollos. Are, not, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Once again, Paul's like, we didn't die for you. Jesus did. Stop picking favorites. It's not about me. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Peter. We're just servants. And the Greek word there for servants in verse 5 means table waiter. He's saying, we're just waiting on you. We're just bringing you the food. We're just serving you. And you guys are like, oh, that's my favorite waiter. No, that's my favorite waiter. Like, who does that, right? Paul's saying, it's all about the owner, right? Do you have a restaurant if you don't have an owner? There's no food, there's no chef, there's no waiters if there's no owner. At least that's how I see this passage. I like using pictures, illustrations, right? And I see Paul saying, look to the owner. We're just serving the food. We are servants of Christ. That's why he goes on to say, I planted Apollos waters, but God causes the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God is the one who causes the growth. Get your eyes on the Lord. It's not about us. We're just servants. Don't boast in man. Boast in God and God alone. We look at chapter 4, verse 1. Paul continues this theme he says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The Greek word for servants in chapter 4, verse 1 is actually a different Greek word from chapter 3, verse 5. This Greek word actually means under rower. It's a, it speaks of a man at the oars under or on a lower deck operating under the direct specific orders. He's saying, I'm just an under rower just rowing the boat, so to speak. I am a servant taking orders from my master. Look at chapter four, verse 10. It says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Wow, 
That's the Apostle Paul. Follow, following in line with his master, taking orders from his master. What did Jesus say? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Paul was all about the gospel, preaching the gospel. And once we get to chapter, I think it's nine, he says, those who proclaim the gospel are to earn their living from the gospel, yet I did not use this right. Even though he could be getting money, funds from the churches, especially the Corinthian church, he did take funds at times from other churches, but he was a tent maker on the side. He's like, I am going to just work myself for the Lord so that no one could say, Paul, you coveted the money. You were in the ministry for the money. He says, nope. I was hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. I'm just a traveling evangelist, a minister of the gospel, following in line with my Savior. So lesson number four, we need to humble ourselves and realize the grace and salvation we have in Christ is a gift from God. I'm just touching on certain things from each chapter, right? There's a lot more in each chapter that we could go through, but I don't think I'll get through the whole book if we do that. So I'm touching on certain things, and these are a, ri- a reminder for us. Philippians 3.1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. So when you're reminded of things in the Scripture, as we're reminded tonight, lessons from the Corinthian church, it's a safeguard for us to not fall into these errors as Christians and as a church get to chapter 5, what's Paul rebuking them for in this chapter? He had a man who was having sexual relations with his father's wife. The Corinthian church is taking it lightly. Some of them are even boasting, oh, that's not a big deal. How does Paul react? He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Now go down to verse 11, 1 Corinthians 5.11. He says, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat. With such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That's a quotation from De- Deuteronomy 13 5. Remove the wicked man. So if there's a man in the church, a woman in the church, they're partaking in sin continuously, and they say, No, I'm a brother, I'm a sister in the Lord. What does Paul say here? If you're going to be biblical, If you're going to do the God-honoring thing, you're going to remove this wicked person from amongst your midst. Now you're going to approach them in love. You're going to rebuke them. You're going to take another to rebuke them. You're going to bring them before the church. And then that time comes where if they're still hardened in their heart, you remove them from the church. So are we to judge? I mean, Paul says in verse 12, do you not judge those who are within the church? And even in verse 3 of chapter 5, He says, I have already judged him who has committed this. We are to judge those in the church with righteous judgment. We're to be discerning of good and evil. So lesson number six for us. Well, that was lesson five. Lesson number five, don't take part in the immorality of the world. 
We want to be holy as God is holy. What does it mean to be holy? Separate. Separate from the evil that's in this world. And unfortunately, sin crept into this church to the point so horrifically that they're taking part in sins that Paul even says, this is even outside of the bounds of many in the world that you guys are taking part in this. This is truly wicked stuff. And we get to chapter 6. And you get one of the strongest rebukes in this whole letter, or at least the, one of the strongest warnings, verse 9 through 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. I love verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's the church. The church was those things in verses 9 and 10. Many of us can find your past identity perhaps in those things. But such were some of you. Past tense. You were that no longer. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're no longer to identify as those things anymore. You're no longer a thief. You're no longer a homosexual. You're no longer a covetous person. You're no longer an idolater. You are worshiping Christ now. You're a new creation. Paul says, I think it's six or seven times in this chapter, do you not know? You see that phrase in verse 2, verse 3, verse 15, verse 16, verse 19. He's like, don't you know? Don't you know you're going to judge the world? Don't you know you're going to judge angels? Don't you know you're members of Christ? Don't you know that one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? It's like, don't you get it? He was there 18 months. Paul was there, I think it was according to Acts 18.11, It tells us that Paul ministered amongst the Corinthian church for 18 months. He poured into them. So by the time he's writing these letters, he's like, don't you know this by now? Do you not know? Also in verse 9, we see, do not be deceived. That's a lesson for the Christian church today, right? Don't be tricked. Don't be duped into thinking that the unrighteous will, in fact, inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't that what some churches are teaching today? Hyper grace movement, live however you want and you'll still inherit the kingdom of God. Many of the texts in the New Testament where it says do not be deceived, the Christian church today is deceived in. So the lesson for us, flee immorality, glorify God with your body. Get to chapter seven. It's a chapter about marriage, chapter about relationships. Paul's correcting some of their perhaps questions about relationships and marriage. And what he says in this chapter, go to verse 7, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. You see throughout chapter 7, Paul is trying to get them to be single. That's what I see at least. He says marriage is a great thing. 
and he talks about that, and he goes back and forth. Marriage is such a blessing, but oh, singleness. Singleness is great. Why? Because you can be undistracted. Marriage has a lot of responsibilities. There's a lot of blessings in marriage. But he goes, man, in verse 32, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. He goes, the married person, their attention's divided. They've got to care for their spouse, got to care for their kids, things to do around the house. When you're single, man, you have this undivided attention to the Lord. So if you're single, what a blessing that is to just devote your life to Christ just as the apostle Paul did, just as John the Baptist did, just as Jeremiah did. What a great way to serve the Lord. So lesson number seven, marriage is a beautiful blessing, yet singleness in some ways is better because you're free from the concerns of marriage and can have undistracted devotion to the Lord. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So if you're single, get busy for Jesus and be blessed. Get to chapter eight now. Chapter eight, verse nine. Paul's talking about liberty in this chapter. He's talking about Christian freedoms. You get to verse nine. He says, but take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. They're going to the temple. They're eating food that was, I believe, sacrificed to idols. And Paul's saying all food is declared clean. I mean, it's, it's food. There's no demons. There's no such thing as an idol, really. It's just a piece of wood. It's just a piece of metal. Eat the food. Pray. Pray before you eat and eat and enjoy. But you need to be careful. You have this right. You have this freedom to do this. But watch out for your brother. Care for your brother and your freedoms. You get to verse 10. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus by sinning against the brethren, and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. That's a pretty heavy verse. What, how far are you willing to go? How far am I willing to go for the sake of my brother and sister and the Lord in causing them not to stumble? Paul says, I'll go as far as not even eating meat again. I'm sure he loved meat. I'm sure he loved certain foods. But he goes, if that's going to cause my brother or sister to stumble, I'm willing to let it go. I'm willing to go the extra mile for my neighbor. I think many Christians have the mentality of, nope, I'm free to do this. I'm free to do that. Who are you to judge me? Get over it. And we need to be careful with that prideful, arrogant heart that Paul's correcting here in chapter 8 that I believe many of the Corinthians had. We need to humble ourselves and be concerned with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Go to chapter 9. This is the chapter that I referred to earlier. Verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Yet in verse 15, Paul says, but I have used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things that it may be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man take my boast an empty one. I think the Corinthian church, what they were doing was they were like scrutinizing Paul's every move. They were watching him and they were, they were thinking perhaps he's covetous. They were looking at who he was traveling with. I think Paul was traveling with maybe Timothy, 
maybe other disciples, and maybe there was even a woman amongst their midst. And that's why Paul says earlier in the chapter, in verse 6, he talks about, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? And even in the verses before, in verse 5, he says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord, and even Peter? So he's like, wait, Peter's doing these things, and it's okay, but the second we take along a believing wife, oh, there's a problem. They're scrutinizing Paul's every move, and he's saying, no, I have the right to do this. We can take along a believing wife. We can earn a living with the gospel, but he practices what he preaches in the last chapter. I'm not going to make use of these things. I'm going to put these rights aside so I don't even give you an inkling or a chance to look at us as if we're causing you to stumble. I love Paul's heart. I love the love that Paul has for this church. Even though they're scrutinizing his every move, even though he doesn't feel the love from them, he's going to continue to pour out his heart towards them. He goes on to say in verses 18 through 22, I became weak to those who are weak, to those who are under the law. I became under the law. I do all things for all men so that I might save some. He's like, I'll become like a Jewish person, If I can save them, I'll become like a Gentile. If I can save them, I'll become like a weak person. I'll become like whoever it is. I'm not going to take part in their sin, but I'll take part in their way of life and different things. I'll find out what they enjoy in life so that I can get to know them and get close enough to them so that I can win them to the Lord. And now the last part of chapter 9 are some of my favorite verses. uh, Verses 24 through 27. These are the verses I shared with my brother at his wedding when I gave the best man speech. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. I love the illustrations that Paul uses of athleticism, being an athlete, and that's what he uses here. Verse 25, everyone who competes I think that's the Greek word agonizomai. Everyone who agonizes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I beat down my body and make it my slave. Lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should not be disqualified. He's saying, wow, I pummel my body. Pummel my body. It actually means the Greek word for buffet my body is hupo piazzo. It talks about giving yourself a black eye. Now, he's not actually saying I sit there and punch myself in the face. I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror. I'm like, how black and blue can I get my eyes? He's saying I beat down my sinful flesh. That flesh that rears up its ugly head every day and wants to destroy me and wants to take me out those lustful thoughts, those idolatrous thoughts, those thoughts of self-centeredness, those thoughts that tell me to turn my back on the Lord, those thoughts that tell me to get off the course and go do this or that sin, he's saying, I beat that down. Just as an athlete is tempted to maybe not condition for the Olympics, maybe they wake up in the morning and they go, I don't feel like working out for five hours today. I don't feel like being on this strict diet. I don't feel like preparing to win the gold medal. What do they do? Do they just give up if you're an Olympic athlete? If you're a gold medalist? If you're Michael Phelps, what do you do? You beat down your body as the Olympian and you wake up and you say, no, body, 
I'm going to work out this amount of hours a day. I'm going to eat these foods. Why? Because your goal is that prize. Your goal is that earthly wreath that Paul's talking about in this passage. What's our goal? The imperishable wreath of heaven. And Paul's saying, what's more important, a gold medal or heaven for all eternity? So what's more important? Them beating down their body and making these drastic sacrifices and crazy self-control for that medal? Or for us as Christians, radically self-sacrificing every day beating down our bodies for the goal of heaven. And he says, if I don't do this, if I don't beat down this flesh, if I allow this flesh to overtake me and I go on living in sin, I will be disqualified. Adakamos, right? Rejected, thrown away. That's a pretty heavy verse, isn't it? We have a lot to learn from the apostle Paul there. Many say, this is my life verse or that's my life verse and Those last couple verses, whenever I run across them, I feel like those are some of my life verses. That's why I take the Christian faith so seriously because I don't want to be disqualified. I want to run the race till the end. And every day, as Jesus said, I take up my cross. I crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's Galatians 5, 24. So we need to run in such a way to win. That's lesson number nine. Strive for the kingdom. Get to chapter 10. Paul gives the Corinthian church a history lesson. He takes them back to Israel. He talks about Moses. He talks about the Red Sea in chapter 10. He says, don't you remember our fathers, how they all passed through the Red Sea? Do you remember that story in Exodus and Numbers, Corinthians? Those of you who are Jewish, do you remember that story? Do you remember how they were all in the sea and they were baptized through Moses and they were rescued through the sea and the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? Do you remember that? And then he gets to verse five in chapter 10 and he says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Verse six, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. What were we just talking about at the end of chapter 9? How we beat down our flesh every day, right? And he continues on that theme in chapter 10 here. We don't want to crave evil things. What's one way to help us not do that in this life? Look to the Old Testament. Look to Exodus. Look to Numbers. Look to the mistakes the Israelites made back there and don't make the same mistakes. Those mistakes are laid out for us in verses 7 through 10. Don't be idolaters. Don't act immorally. Don't try the Lord. Don't grumble. And then he repeats himself in verse 11 of chapter 10. These things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Lesson number 10 for us can be found in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Okay, when we're standing, praise God, we're standing but be careful that you don't fall. And then verse 14, flee from idolatry. Run for your lives if any sin comes knocking at your door. Chapter 11, what do we deal with in this chapter? I mean, verse one, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. I love that. How Paul says, I'm I'm a great example for you to follow. 
Look at my life, Corinthian church. Follow my example. But what's going on in chapter 11 that he needs to rebuke? They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 30, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So they're taking things lightly at the Lord's Supper. They're living in sin, and they're coming before the Lord, and they're partaking of the bread and the cup. They're doing it in in a light way. And Paul says, many of you guys are dying. Many of you guys are just, that's it. And he says in verse 31, if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged And he says in verse 28, let a man examine himself. What's our lesson for this? In this chapter, examine yourself. Is there any sin in your life? Repent of it. The Christian life is a constant daily examination of saying, Lord, search my heart and know me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord. And when God brings up things in your mind and in your heart that are contrary to his word, contrary to his law, That's when we repent and we turn and we think the same thoughts that God does about our sin and we say, Lord, forgive me of this. They weren't doing that. They were taking the Lord's Supper lightly. Many of them were dying. Pretty heavy stuff going on in this letter. We get to verse 12, or chapter 12, excuse me. We're dealing now with the spiritual gifts. Paul corrects their misunderstandings of the spiritual gifts. Chapter 12. Verse 29, he says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. What's our lesson in chapter 12? Earnestly desire the greater gifts. Why do you want to desire the greater gifts? So that you could show off. So you could be like, wow, look at I, I give a great teaching. I can do an awesome healing. I can speak in tongues. No, the gifts aren't about us. They're about serving others. And we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 14 when Paul, again, picks up with the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts are to edify and build up the church. And so you earnestly desire the greater gifts so that you can greater, to a, to a greater capacity serve and bless and build up others. So we're to aggressively desire the greater gifts. I forget to do that. I need to pray more for that. I don't know about you guys, but Lord, I want those greater gifts because when we have the heart of God, we want to serve and bless others more. And that leads us right into chapter 13, the love chapter. They had a wrong view of love. I gave a teaching last night at my house and we dealt with this chapter. My teaching that I gave last night was loving the unlovable. And I said, newsflash for you guys, that's how I began the teaching. I said, we're all unlovable. Did you know that? I mean, why? Because we're all still in our sinful fleshly bodies. And at times it's hard for people to love us. I said, when I get home from work, After a long day and I'm tired and I'm cranky and I feel like the guys at my work just drain me of just every ounce of energy that I have and I have to sit in my car for a couple minutes saying, Lord, when I walk through that door, help me to serve, help me to love, help me to care for my children and my wife, help me to put their needs and their desires and their wants before mine. And 
so I walked in the door last night and my wife looked at me and we're both like, we just had that look on our faces like, man, we're both tired. We're both exhausted. She's like, I haven't slept all day. And I'm like, oh man, I had a long day at work. And it's hard to love the unlovable. I'm unlovable when I get home after a long day at work. But my wife is gracious to me. Paul defines what love is in 1 Corinthians 13. When you think of love in our culture today, it's more of an emotion. It's more of a feeling. Oh, I love you. It's, it's this feeling, this honeymoon phase, which I mentioned last night. But what happens when that honeymoon phase wears off? What happens when 10 years down the line, your kids are nagging at you and you're working long hours and you have bills to pay and life gets hard and those feelings and those emotions aren't necessarily there every single day? Then what do you do? You say, okay, I'm out of this relationship. I'm leaving. I'm gone. That's what many in the world do, right? But is that Christ-like, God-like, self-sacrificial, agape love that Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians 13? You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think the emotions maybe and the feelings told him, this is going to be rough to go to the cross. You're going to have to bear the wrath of God, the sins of the world. So why don't you go back? And that's where he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he's battling in the spirit and in the flesh. Even though he didn't have a sinful fleshly nature like us, he was human. He did take on our nature to a certain extent. But what compelled him to go to the cross? Love. Not the emotion or feeling necessarily, but the self-sacrificial love of wanting to lay his life down. And that's where he says, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. That's how love speaks, right? Not my will, your will be done. I get home from work after a long day. I say, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. Help me to serve as Jesus served me and loved me. And in chapter 13, Paul breaks down love. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, it does not brag, it's not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, it's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And so I like to examine my life when I read those verses, and even in the first three verses, Paul mentions these different things that he can do. I can give my body to be burned. I can give all my possessions to feed the poor. I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. I can have prophecy and all knowledge, and I can do all these things. But if I don't have love, what am I? He says nothing. Love is at the forefront and at the center of all we do as believers. You can have all knowledge. You can deliver your body to be burned. You can give all your possessions to the poor. You can work at a rescue mission. You could be a pastor. You could have some great gifts. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. Love is at the forefront of all we do as Christians. And that's lesson number 13 for us. So we're almost there, trying to get to 15. Chapter 14. Chapter 14. The word edification is used seven times in chapter 14. Once again, he's talking about the spiritual gifts. And he says in verse 12, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. That should be at the forefront of our minds, to build others up. And that's what I mentioned in chapter 12. So the lesson for us in chapter 14 is to seek to build others up. 
Now we get to chapter 15. Chapter 15, the chapter of the gospel. Listen to how one commentary describes chapter 15. It says, It is more important than any other portion of this epistle as it contains a connected and labored and unanswerable argument for the main truth of Christianity and consequently of Christianity itself. And it is more interesting to us as mortal beings and as having an instinctive dread of death than any other portion of the epistle. It has always therefore been regarded with deep interest by expositors and it is worthy of the deepest attention of all. If the argument in this chapter is solid, then Christianity is true. And if true, then this chapter unfolds to us the most elevated and glorious prospect which can be exhibited to dying yet immortal man. It's a very powerful chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul uses a logical argument in this chapter called reductio ad absurdum. He wants to show the Corinthians the absurdity of their argument. And what is their argument? They say, we do not believe that there is a resurrection of the dead. After everything else that Paul has corrected in the first 14 chapters, which is a lot, now you get to chapter 15, and they're doubting whether there's a resurrection. When what is at the forefront and at the center of Paul's teaching? What do you think he taught them for 18 months when he was there? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Imagine how frustrating this must be for the Apostle Paul. Let's see what Paul says. Verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand. So this isn't their first time hearing the gospel. He says, I preached it to you, and you're standing in it. Verse 2, by which also you are saved, if, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what happens if they don't hold fast? What's the same point that he made in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and now he's making here in verse 2? You're saved if you hold fast. If you don't hold fast, what you're showing is that your belief is in vain. What you're showing is your faith is empty if you don't hold fast and live for the gospel to the very end. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I wish our friends in the back there didn't leave because I wanted to make this point to them again. We had four friends back there in white shirts. One of them gave me a thumbs up when he just walked out, so praise God. What's the most important thing once again? I delivered, look at verse three, I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Once again, that's at the forefront of what we do as believers. That's what we preach, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. That's a pretty big list of people that Jesus appeared to, right? He died, he rose, and he didn't do it in some secret dark corner of Jerusalem and then just rise to the Father and say, everyone must believe that I rose from the grave and have blind faith. No, he appeared to more than 500 people 
And Paul says, some are still alive today. Okay, Corinthians, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe Peter, if you don't believe James, go talk to the hundreds of other witnesses that saw Jesus face to face after the resurrection. Pretty compelling evidence. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now here's, here comes the argument, the main argument in verses 12 through around 20. Paul says, so now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's going, does this really make sense? Okay, we're preaching Christ is raised from the dead, and you're saying there is no resurrection from the dead. Pretty foolish, right? Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And when I share this part at the rescue mission, what I often tell them is, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the grave, shut your Bibles, throw them away, go back to your drugs. That's pretty heavy, right? That gets their attention. They're like, what? That's the argument that Paul is making here. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, the scriptures aren't true. The prophecies weren't fulfilled. We're liars. You're not in the faith. Those who you know that died in the faith, they didn't go to heaven because their sins haven't been paid for. Do you see the ramifications, Corinthians? If you really want to say there's no resurrection, do you see how absurd that is? And what does Paul say in verse 20? But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He says, of course Christ has been raised from the dead. I've seen him. Peter's seen him. James and John and the disciples saw him. The 500 saw him. Go see the tomb. It's empty. This wasn't done in a dark corner. This is fact. Jesus rose from the grave. So our preaching, therefore, is not in vain. And your faith is not in vain. And what we do as Christians is not in vain. And our struggles with temptation and fighting the good fight daily is not in vain. And feeding the poor is not in vain. And struggling for the kingdom and all these different things that we do, we're not of all men most to be pitied. This is part of parcel of the Christian life. And it's not empty. It all has a purpose. It all has a meaning. I believe this is a very, very powerful chapter, which at least for me confirms my faith even more. Makes me more zealous to want to preach Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead and live more boldly and more courageously for him. Pretty powerful, wouldn't you say? You get to the end of chapter 15, one of my, I always say favorite verses, right? There's so many favorite verses in the Bible, right? Verse 58, therefore, in light of this whole chapter, 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In light of the resurrection, in light of Jesus paying for your sins, in light of eternity, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that it's not in vain. It might feel empty at times. It might feel like you're not having an effect at times. I know I feel that way. I'm preaching at the mission where I work. I'm counseling these guys. I'm pouring into them. And then the next day they leave. One of them leaves. Or another guy that I've been pouring into for months. Oh, he leaves. He goes back to his drugs. And I go, this feels like it's in vain. I feel like they're not listening. I feel like they're not getting it. And then I remind myself of verses like this. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil. It's not in vain. It's not empty. God has a purpose. God's doing something in the midst of it. I'm going to continue sowing those seeds. I'm going to continue planting. I'm going to continue doing what God has called me to do until he calls me home. Every day, fun fact, you have 100,000 roughly heartbeats a day. I just felt like looking that up today. How many heartbeats do you have a day? 100,000. It says everyone is a billionaire when it comes to heartbeats. You're given 2.5 billion, roughly, heartbeats in your life. That's what you're given, 2.5 billion heartbeats. That's probably over a course of 75 years, maybe 80 years if you live that long. And then that's it. You have this amount of heartbeats, and then you're going to go meet the Lord. And then what are you going to have to show for it? What did you do for Jesus Chapter 16, as we bring this to a close. Verse 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And then in verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha, or come Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, do it in love. Whatever your gift is, do it in love. You served in children's ministry, do it in love. You serve in a prayer group like when I walked in tonight and people were praying, do it in love. When you're talking to a spouse or a friend, do it in love. When you're using your Christian freedoms, do it in love. When you're teaching and preaching, do it in love. When you're at work, work for the glory of God and do it in love. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. May we have a loving heart in whatever we do. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a lamp to 